Welcome to this ChangeBoard Future Talent podcast. I'm Jim Carrick-Burtwell, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of ChangeBoard. Today we present Margaret Heffernan's keynote speech from ChangeBoard's Future Talent Conference in 2017. After working at the BBC as a producer, Margaret moved to the US where she spearheaded multimedia productions for Intuit, the learning company, and also Standard & Poor's. She was named as a top 100 media executive by The Hollywood Reporter. Speaking about how do we rebuild trust, Margaret drew on her own experience in business and the arts, arguing that the creative world's ability to take risks to achieve its goals should provide an inspiration to corporate environments and that we should all be more like artists. Thank you very much. Uh, Last month, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was at an amazing venue. Uh, It's the Lincoln Cottage. It's on the outskirts of D.C., and from the front porch, you can see the Capitol building, and from the back porch was the front line of the Civil War, and it's where Lincoln went to think. What an amazing place to think. And I was working with about 20 CEOs of U.S. healthcare companies who were facing what they thought would be the repeal of Obamacare. And they didn't go into healthcare to turn away millions of people. So they were kind of on a front line all of their own. The day before, they'd been taken to amazing venues all over the city. They'd met incredible people, all stimulus for great thinking. But the truth was, as I sat with them, in a room full of post-it notes and fruit and candy and chocolate. They couldn't think at all. Now, they hadn't started life like this. You knew they'd started life curious and energetic and interested and capable of thinking across boundaries without even thinking that's what they were doing. But now they had freedom and power and no idea how to use them. And they were sitting and, you know, they had a pile of post-it notes they were putting on the wall, you know, empowerment, engagement, diversity, inclusion, all the mumbo-jumbo bullshit we talk about management all the time. And they couldn't think for themselves. And in case anybody's under the illusion that this is somehow a strange, particularly American problem, You know, twice this week I've sat in less salubrious venues, but rooms of senior leaders confronting hard problems, absolutely stuck. Much better at coming up with alibis than ideas. And for a while I was kind of puzzled by this passivity, and then I remembered a piece of research that came out from Harvard a few years ago Uh, with the extremely deeply provocative title, How to Kill Creativity. And the researchers determined that it really only took five things. It took limited choices, a lot of surveillance and oversight, uh, expected evaluation, rewards, and competition. And all of the, the leaders that I'm talking about, they'd all gone through school systems that did that to a T. And then they'd gone into companies that did that to a T. And they were expert second-guessers. 
They were fantastic at discerning the right answer, which had led them to imagine that there always is a right answer, and that if you get it quickly, then you must be intelligent. And suddenly they find themselves in a place where this just doesn't work anymore. Why not? Well, to some degree, you know, teaching people how to follow rules and routines is fine when you know what's going to happen next. But we don't really know now what's going to happen next. And this is a genuinely new thing. The doyen of forecasters, Philip Tetlock, argues that today the window in which we can do accurate prediction has shrunk to two years. It's smaller than it's ever been. And that kind of changes everything, because it means, as one CEO said to me, he said, well, it means kind of planning is obsolete. It means you need very different kinds of people, very different kinds of thinking, that you need people who can think for themselves, live, on the fly, in real time. You need people who aren't phased by uncertainty, who aren't frightened of ambiguity. You need people who can think like artists. Now, why do I say that? Well, I spent the first half of my career, fortunately, delightfully, working with some of the world's finest artists, poets, composers, designers, writers, musicians. And it's a sort of cliche to imagine that these people are kind of infantile and undisciplined, and nothing could be further from the truth. These are the toughest, most resilient, most courageous people I have ever met in my life. They cast their net wide, they dig deep, they take enormous risks, they don't know what safety nets look like. They're comfortable with the idea that they don't know. They're not interested in second guessing because it's so unoriginal. They're highly driven to find meaning, to make meaning, to keep exploring and asking harder questions because maybe it'll produce a better sentence or a better line or a better note. They don't need rewards because they can't not do what they do all the time. They know, like Voltaire, that even if doubt is uncomfortable, Certainty is absurd when you're trying to make something that you've never seen before. Now, how do they do that? It's, again, you know, it's kind of, we've always patronized artists, calling them lovies, kind of surprised by the warmth, the emotional warmth and generosity that characterizes their relationships. But what is that about? It's about giving enough and being open to receive enough to create trust between people so that together you can do this really hard, demanding, often frightening work. I spend a lot of time talking to musicians who work with Adele, and they don't work with her because she's rich and famous, because they've worked with her when she was none of those things. They work with her 
because they love how open she is to what they bring. And she works with them because they always want to bring something new and different and surprising. And because everybody that, work in, that works in this team together would give their eye teeth to create something better today than what they made yesterday. I spent many extremely happy, difficult years on the board of RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And we tend to think, oh, it's a school that pumps out movie stars. Well, yeah, it does. But what's so fascinating is to sit in on the auditions and see that the really glamorous, beautiful, self-centered applicants don't stand a chance. The ones who passed all the tests, ticked all the boxes, rarely get past the first audition. The people who are compelling and interesting to watch are the people who are giving generously to other people on the stage because they recognize that it's what happens between people that creates the drama, that creates meaning. Now, people often look at my CV and they're kind of puzzled because they think, well, how can it be that you go from making radio and TV uh, programs and films and then you end up running software companies? And they think that's really strange and I don't see any difference at all because all of these are acts of imagination. All of these require high degrees of creativity, high degrees of tolerance, for uncertainty and a huge motivating power to make something that nobody's ever seen before. And recently, I've started spending a lot of time with scientists because scientists do what entrepreneurs do, which is they find really hard problems and then they try to, set, to solve them, often in a very competitive environment with rubbish rewards. And it's really interesting because you find, just as you find companies that are really productive and creative, you find science labs that are really productive and creative. And I went to visit one <clears throat> run by a guy in Israel named Uri Alon. And Alon's lab is famous for the number of breakthroughs it's made in the kind of borderline between physics and molecular biology. And I asked him how he did this. And he said, well, like every other science lab, he has a two-hour meeting, mostly on Tuesdays. I don't know why scientists love Tuesdays, but maybe they all hate Mondays. Um, but the first half hour of Alon's lab meeting, you are not allowed to talk about science. You can talk about music or art or theater or politics or sports or kids or birthdays or weddings or divorces or whatever you want. You have to talk about life. Why, I said, because you know all these scientists really are chomping at the bit. They want to talk about science. Well, Alon said, he said, when I did my PhD, I went through this prolonged period of being hopelessly confused, terrified that I was a rubbish scientist, completely upside down, not knowing quite whether I was on the right track or the wrong track. There were days it was so bad I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And he said, what really kept me going through that was the support of the people around me. 
And afterwards, when I'd finished my research, I'd finished my PhD, I had made a breakthrough, I realized this wasn't me. This was part of the process that actually, if you don't go through that period of being lost and confused, it's because you're staying to everything you already know. So of course you're not gonna make a breakthrough. And it made me realize that if I wanted to keep doing this, and I wanted a lab that would keep doing it, I needed to create this sense of support and safety so that when all the scientists around me went through this terrible, confusing experience, they'd get through it because they had the support and the trust and the understanding of the people around them. And then I said to Alon, well, how did you figure this out? Did you go to business school? No. Did you read about it? No. I found out, he said, about it, because I decided I needed to do something that got me accustomed to risk and danger and confusion. So I started doing improv comedy. Now, it's hard for me to describe how funny Uriolon isn't, right? <laughs> but the point is he realized that this state of uncertainty and ambiguity and danger and having no idea what happens next was something he had to get really good at if he was going to help the people around him get really good at it too. In some way, you might think, that Alon was teaching himself, a world-class scientist, how to think like an artist. And one of the most surprising things that I've done in the last few years, which was definitely never on my life plan, um, was I found myself working for some of the top sports teams in the country. Now, I'm not really a sports person. Right? So I was kind of amazed when these teams reached out and they said, we've read all your books, we love your books, will you come and talk to us? And I thought, well, this is different, this is completely unknown territory to me, so of course I'll say yes. Right? Because the stuff I've done, I know I can do that, but I don't know if I can do this, so the only way to find out is to go and do it. And one of the teams that I worked with was Saracens Rugby. And the people at Saracens, after they'd explained rugby to me, right, um, told me this amazing thing, which is they have two principles on which they have built the success of their team. Making memories and building bonds. What the heck does that mean, I said. I said, well, we realize that actually, you know, we can do all the training and the physio and the neuroscience and all that nonsense. We can do all that. Everybody does that. It's a hygiene factor. But actually, what we really want is for the members of our team to care about each other a lot. And so we, we bring their wives to the training grounds. We bring their kids to the training ground. We get the senior players to mentor the junior players. We create an environment in which there is a high level of trust, a high level of dependency, and a high level of reciprocity. Because what we know is that when they're in the middle of a match and nobody can tell them what to do, they have to keep deciding really fast 
what to do next. What will keep them going, what will make them decide to take those big creative gambles that result in victory will be their affection for each other. And that if we take them on experience that create memories, if we give them time and context in which to build bonds, that they will have that inner resilience and toughness and courage suddenly to try to make the magic move. And it was extraordinary because I was there on Sunday and I saw exactly what they meant. It was a good game. It was an okay game. And suddenly the whole thing just kind of changed to a different level and they started taking risks and they just blew the other side off the pitch. Making memories and building bonds. In a way, you could say that the players at Saracens Rugby were thinking like artists. They certainly created a beautiful game. So I'm sort of heartened when I see that some of the companies I work with, like Microsoft, have started recruiting specifically arts graduates. They know they need a different way of thinking. They know they need people who aren't rules-bound in the way that they approach problems, aren't regulated in the way that they work, who don't see boundaries. If they're going to be able to create new sorts of technologies that nobody really even knows how to describe yet. And I'm really heartened to see big pharma firms suddenly hiring performance artists and musicians to work in R&D, not because they want to turn them into scientists, but because they know they need a new kind of thinking to figure out how to design the products that they know they have the intellectual capacity for but for which they absolutely need people who can think for themselves, who actually don't know how to do anything else. I think we're all kind of on a front line of our own right now. We have enormous uncertainty, which only means really we have enormous possibilities. We have some really hard choices to make about how we want to live and how we want to work and what we really value and what we're prepared to throw away and what we will stake our lives on. And if we're going to find the courage and the creativity and the imagination and the resilience and the daring to have the arguments that take the poor ideas and gradually turn them into really great ideas. The future, of course, you can't define the future. The only way you can define the future is to say it's everything that hasn't happened yet. And so where we are now, on the front line of our futures, requires a level of creative imagination and courage to make of our communities and our workplace and our lives something truly original. Like all the artists I've ever worked with, it will demand everything you have, everything you know, everything you want, and more.
It'll be an amazing adventure. And it could turn into a work of art. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Changeboard Future Talent podcast. To register for your place at this year's Future Talent Conference on March the 22nd in London, where we'll explore the theme Skills to Thrive in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, visit ftconference.changeboard.com.